2: A science story, huh? These NYU scientists—they uh, it felt really—I right. was so and I, just oh, thought, well.
1: I figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment because science oh. was on my
2: side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Glider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Erin Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about silence. Speaking of silence, sadly there is no Liz here on the podcast with me this week as she is on her way to Boise State in Idaho to lead a workshop. Our loss is Boise's gain, but she has left some research here for me. She's like my research fairy. She just slips papers under my pillow while I sleep at night, but When we talk about silence, she tells me that there's a really well established theory that's relevant to this topic. It's called the spiral of silence, which sounds a little ominous, like a Bond villain's secret weapon or something. But basically, what it says is that people are always judging whether an opinion that they hold is common or rare. So if I have an opinion about something that carries some moral weight to it, something that's important, and I feel like you disagree with me, I might be more likely to hold my tongue or not say what I mean. But when everybody's doing it, it means everyone's staying silent. Everyone's assumption of what public opinion actually looks like gets warped because they're not hearing those dissenting viewpoints. So it creates this sort of oppressive silence. Of course, there are different kinds of silence. Silence can be positive. It can be necessary or unavoidable. Our first story today takes a different, perhaps more literal approach to silence. Our first story is from Cambry Cruz. It was recorded in September 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was role models.
0: Hey everybody, hello. Hi, uh, so before I tell my story, I would love to give you guys a fun little fact, uh, a little bit of trivia, I guess. Um, in prison, gum sells for a dollar a stick. It's pretty impressive, right? Yeah. On the list of items that my dad, uh, number 1133944, wanted me to smuggle into him in jail, gum seemed pretty harmless. Uh, he'd also asked for a needle and a $100 bill. Uh, no, we'll stick with the gum. Thanks, Dad. Um, no, my dad's prison is in Huntsville, Texas, and uh, it's a lot less scary than i expected honestly it looks like a junior high just wrapped in barbed wire (laughs) and uh everyone there is really friendly in that stereotypical texas friendly way you know uh for example though there's this one guard who inspects me in my rental car when i go to visit and he is straight out of central casting he's pot-bellied has a 10-gallon hat cowboy boots and a big white handlebar mustache and he looks at my driver's license and he goes New York City, get a rope. Yeah, I know. He he just made a joke about hanging me at a prison that's kind of famous for its executions. But he's really nice. He's really nice when he says it. And he's really slow. He is uh, like just that Texas slow, but also he's wearing cowboy boots. Like what would he do if somebody just busted through the gate? Like, really, what would he do? Um, but I guess he figures that somebody would never be a girl in high heels from New York City. And she most definitely would not smuggle a jumbo pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit in the waistband of her slacks from Banana Republic. <laughs> not her, not me, of course. So well, he's inspecting me with his metal detecting wand, you know, and it screeches exactly where I've got the gum hidden, and I'm like, uh, and I tense up, and he goes, oh, don't you worry, sugar, that's just your belt buckle. Uh, Not wearing a belt. Uh, Juicy fruit, however, is wrapped in foil, like not something I'd considered, and apparently neither did he, because he's like, you have a nice visit with your daddy now, and he just sends me on in, and I'm like, all right, great, and I got the juicy fruit safely tucked away, and I go inside, and I wait for my dad to go, come into view, and when he does, my God, my breath is just taken away. It shocks me to see him hunched over and in pain. It looks like he can barely walk. I'm like, my God, what, what happened to him? He, he had mentioned a couple of prison fights, but this is not what I was expecting. He's like in just tremendous pain. And I don't want to have him see me upset so I I like put on a fake smile and I'm like hi hi dad he just concentrates on each and every painful step and I my heart just breaks I think god I, I've let my dad rot alone in prison and the feeling overwhelms me and the tears well up in my eyes and I start to cry and that's when my dad stops stands perfectly upright and then starts dancing a jig ha ha, ha 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 and he signs in sign language ha ha see what happens if you don't visit me more I'm an old man and then he starts walking with his trademark strut cockiness just dripping from every pore yeah steel bars that they, they can't cage charisma <laughs> Uh, my dad who is in jail is deaf and a prankster so he got me <laughs> yay <laughs> dad good job and I'm like you jerk you know and we give a big hug and uh not you know not a long one you know no touching And I'm like oh so- sorry <laughs> oh I can't hug my dad okay so uh, uh yes my dad is deaf um but also uh his sisters are deaf uh my mom is deaf my mom's uh sister is deaf her parents my aunts and uncles on her all her aunts and uncles almost everyone on my mom's side of the family is deaf and this usually prompts a lot of questions so i will go ahead and answer the top three faqs so we can just all stop thinking about them okay one yes i know sign language two uh i know how to talk because i'm not deaf And three, nope, I don't know braille, sorry. (laughs) That's a fun menu. <laughs> I like all the little bumps and stuff, but I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know braille. Um, <laughs> and another one people do want to know is uh, that generational deafness on my mom's side of the family. Oh, is it hereditary? Well, that's actually quite rare. The statistic is 90% of deaf parents have hearing children and 90% of deaf children have hearing parents. So yeah, it's uh, very rare. Yeah, do the math. It's like oh, ten, it's a, it's a small anomaly. My, fa- my mom. Mom's family is an anomaly. Um, And then another one I hear all the time is like, oh my goodness, oh, I'm so sorry. Your family is deaf, oh, your whole family, even your mama too, oh, bless your heart. I'm like, bless my heart, bitch, I said they were deaf, not dead. (laughs) Think about it for a second. You're a kid, your parents don't know what you're doing. The downside is what exactly? yeah our trailer was the place to hang out we, um we could listen to music as loud as we wanted whenever we wanted sneaking out was walking out the front door bye mom bye dad see you later sneaking back in just as easy as long as we didn't vibrate the trailer which was up on stilts or like you know shine headlights in their face or something you know they didn't know what we were up to uh, so anyway, uh, so back in prison with my dad, we go out into the uh, prison visiting yard, and um, and I notice my dad has a new tattoo. I'm like, where'd you get that? He says, oh, a boy in the textile mill gave it to me for my 60th birthday. Oh, really? It's a Tasmanian devil with his tongue sticking out, doing the I love you signs. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, real mature. I guess his decisions, I mean like he's in jail, so he didn't have good decision making qualities, I guess. But I'm like, oh, but speaking of birthdays, I have a surprise for you. I have gum. And he's like, oh, give me, give me, give me. I'm like, oh dad, calm down, calm down. I look around to make sure the coast is clear, you know. And I slowly pull it out of my waistband and he just rips it out of my hand, tears it open and starts chomping on a piece of gum with his remaining front teeth. His back teeth having been knocked out from those aforementioned prison fights, but also the dental system in prison isn't, you know, top notch like they all advertise. Uh, so he looks like a cow chewing cud he's like and it only takes a couple of for the taste to overwhelm him he hasn't had gum in years and he he closes his eyes and he leans back and he puts his arms out like he's praising Jesus he's like long time wow tastes different long time I guess And then out of nowhere, just starts shoving sticks of gum in these secret pockets that he's cut in his shoes, right? His Converse sneakers, he's got little hidden pockets between the cushion and the soles of his shoes. And he's shoving stick after stick of gum. I'm like, dad, dad, what are you doing? He says, I can sell these for $1 a stick. I'm like, god what yeah he starts shoving sticks after stick of gum in his other shoe and he's being really obvious about it doesn't seem to care if anyone is noticing and I'm like oh that is why he'd wanted a jumbo pack he specifically was like jumbo don't forget jumbo pack i was like ah she really likes his Wrigley's I <laughs> like he wanted a fresh piece every 30 minutes or something I don't know no I'm a mule that's what it is I am a mule And I'm freaking out. I notice, uh, I I look around to see if anybody has paid attention or seen what's going on. And that's when I notice this really big, beefy uh, inmate to my left who's got a horrifying facial disfigurement. His, His part of his skull is missing. His eye is missing. His mouth is drooping. And saliva drips out. And he has to mop it up with a handkerchief. And I'm like, oh, my God. What happened to him? He says, oh, him? Uh, He killed his wife and his kids and then tried to kill himself, but it didn't work. Mm. Good man. (laughs) Quiet. (laughs) Quiet, says my deaf dad. (laughs) And good? Well, it's all relative, you know? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, if the disfigured murderer is a good man, in my dad's eyes, because if he isn't, I mean, well, what does that say about dad? Judge not, lest ye be judged. It's kind of how you get by on the inside. And I'm really contemplating that, and I'm getting overwhelmed by the fact that I'm a mule, and he's smuggling gum inside, and this disfigured murderer, and what's happening? And, And that's when I hear a loud shout from across the room, you! And I you know it startles me i I flinch my dad being deaf doesn't hear it but he sees me flinch he says what's wrong i said i don't know I, i heard someone scream and that's when i hear it again you and i look across it's a man in a beige suit cowboy boots cowboy hat texas uh i recognize his face from the portrait on the wall he's the warden he's pissed and he's looking at me or him him, you, come here now. My dad gets up, saunters over like no big whoop. I'm like, what the hell is happening? My dad, uh, the warden knows my dad is deaf, but he screams anyway, like that's gonna help. And he's like, what's in your mouth? My dad opens his mouth and shows him this wad of chewed gum on his tongue. And he's like, he, look, the warden, like he's gonna pop a gasket. Where did you get that? My dad, without hesitation, boop, points right to me, I'm like oh my god he's just ratted me out quicker than a wink and you know he makes the warden makes him spit the gum out and my dad comes over like yeah this happens every day just like junior high you know you can't have gum in school um and I am freaking out and the warden is boring his eyes are just boring down at me and uh, so I just pretend like I'm deaf. I'm like, what's wrong? And my dad says, oh, you're not supposed to have gum. And I'm like, oh, sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> no. oh fuck, gotta Get out of here. And so <laughs> I, I, I've never really been in trouble in my life. And I'm shaking. I wish I were exaggerating. It was like this. And so I grab my Dr. Pepper and I'm dribbling Dr. Pepper down the front of my shirt. And my dad's like, are you shaking? You scared? pussy. For those in the side or listening to the podcast, imagine a horse vagina. That is the sign for pussy. Yeah, yes, I am shaking, and yes, I am scared, and yeah, I guess that makes me a pussy, but you know what else I am? Free. And I'm getting the F out of D. See you, Dad. Good luck with that strip search you got coming. I'm getting out. And so I just like, bye, everybody. Bye, bye, bye. And I speed walk across the parking lot, because you don't want to run in a prison, you know? So I was just like, bye, bye, gotta go, bye. And everyone's still just slow as molasses. Oh, bye. And I I don't know what's going to happen with my dad in this strip search. Uh, And because he's deaf, I have to wait for a letter. And a few weeks later, I get a letter from dad, surprise, I still have the gum. I kept some for myself, I sold some others, and I paid off some debt, because he has debt in prison. He goes, next time, I want you to sneak in a Dairy Queen cheeseburger. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah, okay, sure. Where am I gonna hide that? All right, thank you, that's my story, thank you
2: that was Cambry Cruz Cambria is a renowned storyteller and the author of the critically acclaimed and New York Times bestselling memoir Burn Down the Ground she has performed on the Moth main stage in Radio Hour, Women of Letters Risk and Mortified in 2014 she opened QED a performance venue meets community and learning center With over 100 events per month, ranging from comedy, storytelling, and music, to classes like embroidery, cartooning, and writing, there is something for everyone. Since its opening, QED has been featured on the Jim Gaffigan Show, New York One, the New York and LA Times, and countless other media outlets. And in fact, Story StoryGlider will be hosting a show at QED on October 18th as part of the Speak Up Rise Up Festival. If you're not familiar, Speak Up, Rise Up is an annual storytelling festival here in New York that is focused on elevating underrepresented voices. We're super excited to be a part of it this year. We'd love to see you at our show, and I also recommend checking out the rest of the festival, which actually starts today, on October 11th, and takes place across the next three weekends. And there are so many amazing shows as part of this festival. You can go to speakupriseup.com to find out more. But I personally highly recommend 80 Minutes Around the World, which will be this Saturday at Caveat, hosted by the amazing Nestor Gomez and Angel Ling. But I highly recommend going to SpeakUpRiseUp.com and and checking out some of those shows.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
2: Our next story today is from Christine Lick. It was recorded in December 2018 at the Mortimer B. Zuckerman Research Center Auditorium here in New York. The show is presented in collaboration with Memorial Sloan Kettering.
1: I'm the youngest of her four children. She was concerned about the fact that I would be starting kindergarten. She was worried about having an empty nest long before empty nest syndrome was even a thing. I remember as spring turned into summer. Tension in the house started growing. There was a lot of whispering, secret conversations, discussions happening behind closed doors. At some point, my parents sat me down and explained that she needed an operation. Beyond uh, who would care for me in her absence, my father made it clear that questions were not welcome. I was to listen to my brothers and sister and be on my best behavior while my mother recovered. She came home in, in bandages all over her chest. She was frail and devastated. One of the most vivid memories I have is of her sitting in the living room in the dark on the couch crying. She was sobbing. But when I asked her what was the matter, she would respond with, I'm just sad that you're going to start school soon. Another memory I have is her being devastated over the fact that she couldn't take us school shopping. She was forced to ask my aunt to take her place. As I started kindergarten, my mother started treatment. That's what they called it then, treatment. But every now and again, I'd hear someone refer to it as chemo. My mother didn't drive, so she was forced to have others take her. Uh, Her cousin Josephine was my favorite chauffeur. Uh, She would spend time playing with me during the hours that my mother spent receiving her treatment. Promises of bagels and happy meals kept me on my best behavior. But other times it was my mother's sister who would take us, and she would just drop us off at the hospital leaving me to sit outside in a hallway, waiting for my mother for those hours she was enduring treatment. The surgeries and the treatment, they were torture for my mother. The days following treatment, she was so, so sick. But like my mother, she did her very best to to keep it to herself. But I knew something was terribly wrong. The surgeries and treatment, they were devastating for my mother, but what really destroyed her was gossip. She had found out that a nurse who was working in the local hospital where she was treated had shared information, private, intimate information regarding her treatment with people at a local fire department dinner where my parents had been once active. Almost overnight, my parents decided to sell their house and moved down to Williamsburg, Virginia. It was a place they they loved dearly. And I can only guess now a place where she could really escape the cancer. Friends and family were told that she was in remission. We moved and started a new life. On June 25th, 1983, as the sun set, my sister and I were running around the house playing tag, when my father and my brother pulled up. We ran to them, and my father, not being able to connect eye to eye, kind of blurted out, your mother passed away this afternoon. Not really understanding, uh, I looked and I asked him, when is mommy coming home? He couldn't look back, he couldn't respond, so it was my brother, Kevin, who looked at me and said, mommy isn't ever coming home, she died. Kevin took us in his room to talk, to console us as he often did, and my father made phone calls and arrangements. We were to move back to New York immediately. I had never heard of Awake, let alone ever been to one. I remember holding her cold hand and every now and again I would ask my father to lift me so I could kiss her gently on the cheek. I held it together pretty well for a kid until the morning of her funeral when the funeral director closed the coffin. It was in that moment I realized the finality that I would never see my mother again, that I would never hold her hand or kiss her cheek. The years after my mother died, my siblings and I tried to piece together the mystery that surrounded her illness. And as a teenager, I found her death certificate. I can't say that I was shocked when I found out it was breast cancer. I was angry that they hadn't shared the truth with us But another part of me understood. See, this was 1983. Breast cancer wasn't about pink ribbons. It was about stigma and shame. And I understood why my mother might have wanted to keep it close, going back to that gossip and that shame and that devastation that she felt when people were talking about intimate details of her body. If anything good was to come of that, it was that I was Vigilant in my screenings Since age 25 I had endured mammograms that turned into ultrasounds that turned into biopsies that ultimately turned into nothing So in August 2013 when I was nursing my then 10-month-old daughter and found a lump I wasn't particularly alarmed My OBGYN doesn't didn't hesitate given my mother's history and he ordered the mammogram And again, I thought this is just something that's gonna turn into a sonogram, that's gonna turn into a biopsy, that's gonna turn into nothing, except it was something. I called my wife and explained to her that they think it's cancer. She hurried to the breast imaging center. She made arrangements for my sister to take care of the baby. As I consented to the biopsy, the nurse asked me, How old was she when she was diagnosed? I quickly did the math in my head. She was 38. I was 38. I slowly choked back the tears, but came apart when I realized that I was going to die. She had died, and I was gonna to do to my child just as she had done to me. Except what's worse, my daughter won't even remember me. I remember waking up after surgery, and my surgeon, Angel on Earth, Alexandra here was sitting at the bedside She wasn't who I expected to see. Um, so I knew it was bad news. And she explained uh, that the cancer had spread from the breast to the lymph nodes. She reassured me that the prognosis was still the same. It was excellent, but that the treatment would change. I had already Uh, lost both breasts. Now I had to lose my hair. I endured eight rounds of dose-dense chemotherapy and 33 rounds of radiation, multiple surgeries, and just to keep life interesting, uh, an infection that landed me in the hospital for five days, which was probably the worst for me and my wife. I just want to mention that prior to surgery, I had found myself crying. Uh, Every day the month between diagnosis and actual surgery is a living hell You have this ticking time bomb in your chest, and you just want it out But I was a stay-at-home mom at the time With this young baby who I thought was going to be a head case because her mother kept crying I Reached out to one of the social workers at Sloan Kettering and I explained to her Roz Kleban that I was afraid that I was causing great detrimental harm to my, jo- my daughter. She assured me that Maddie would be just fine, that crying was okay, and that whether or not I cried, Maddie would know something was wrong with Mama anyway. Roz asked me, Christine, what are you so afraid of? And I said, that I'm gonna die. She said, did anyone here say that you were gonna die? Defensively, I shouted back, no. And she said, then stop living as if you are. That phone call with Roz changed everything. As she reminded me, it was my experience, my story. I was not her. And Maddie was not me. I became the author of my own life. None of it was easy, but I was blessed. Blessed with a devoted wife, an amazing daughter, an extended family who cared for us. And part of that extended family was everyone we encountered here at MSK. Part of what makes this difficult is that I carry the BRCA gene mutation. And so we don't know yet if my daughter carries the same mutation that killed my mother and caused my cancer. So we have devised a plan with the social workers here at Sloan Kettering to discuss with Maddie openly and honestly, with age-appropriate dialogue, how to cope with me having been diagnosed, lived through, and surviving cancer. Maddie's a pretty bright six-year-old, and she asks some challenging questions. Lately, she's been asking, well, how'd you get cancer in the first place? I explained that I have a naughty gene that doesn't work the way that it normally does in most people, and it doesn't fight breast cancer Effectively. And more recently, she asked me, do I have that naughty gene? And I responded like a punch to the gut. Maybe. But I assured her that her mother and I, along with everyone here at MSK, will do our best, everything in our power, to make sure that she stays healthy. I'm not sure how my mother would feel about me, standing here on this stage, sharing her story. I hope she's proud of me, but what I know for sure is that she'd want her granddaughter to live a long and healthy life. I'm counting on this institution, this place that collectively saved my life to fix this naughty gene. to prevent cancer, to find a cure. We can't do that alone. We can't do that by hiding, only by doing it together, openly and honestly.
2: That was Christine Lick. Christine is a daughter, mother, survivor, and warrior. She holds an honors bachelor's degree in applied psychology from Farmingdale State College, which she received, along with the 2017 SUNY Chancellor's Award for Student Excellence, just three years after completing treatment for stage 3 invasive ductal carcinoma. Cancer has always been a part of Christine's life, as we heard, and wanting to give back to the facility that saved her life, Christine works as a patient care coordinator at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. When she's not working, Christine enjoys spending time with her wife and learning far more about My Little Pony than she ever thought possible from their six-year-old daughter. And just a reminder, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so I want to give a shout-out to Christine for that. It's something that's definitely close to my heart as the daughter of a breast cancer survivor myself. StoryClider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Erin Barker, and Executive Director Liz Neely. May she return to us soon <laughs> with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Gastor Monte and Miriam Zaringholm. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, Jun Chen, and Gwen Hogan. Special thanks to Caveat and Memorial Sloan Kettering for hosting these shows, and to The Quiet Car on Amdrak and everyone who obeys the rules therein. Thanks for listening.